Hi, it's Erica Kohlberg. And before we dive into today's podcast episode, I have an exciting announcement that can help you save an extra $1,000 without having to penny pinch or change your lifestyle. On Monday, I'm running my free five-day savings challenge, where you'll discover simple and creative ways that you can save extra money every month. And whatever you want to do with that extra money is up to you. I'll just show you how to save it. The challenge is totally free to join. All you need to do is go to erica.com slash go. Erica is with a K and you can secure your spot. By the way, these strategies that you're going to discover can help you easily save money, whether you're a budgeting novice or a finance expert, and they're going to get better and better throughout the week. But I have to tell you, I'm so excited about this and don't want you to miss out. In November of last year, we ran a savings challenge and had over 200,000 people sign up. And on average, people saved $1,005 that month through what they learned in the challenge. That means our challengers collectively saved over $200 million. So trust me when I say you don't want to miss out on this one. And the deadline to sign up to be part of this free challenge is Sunday, 11.59 p.m. Eastern Time. So make sure you secure your spot and get free access today. Again, that's erica.com slash go, E-R-I-K-A dot com slash go. See you inside. Because it was probably an eight-month process of, honestly, me just being pretty directionless and kind of anxious about what do I do? Because on one hand, I'd basically been preparing my whole life to work at Morgan Stanley. I just knew I wanted to be in sales and trading because that's what my family did. And so I was in my dream job at the time. But on the other hand, I wasn't feeling fulfilled in my dream job. And so I knew that there was going to kind of be a fork in the road where at some point I was going to either stay at Morgan Stanley and get rid of Morning Brew or go to Morning Brew and leave Morgan Stanley. I thought about what would I regret more? I remember like in call it 2017, 2018 and 2019, I didn't have much money, but I was so happy. I just had this anxiety and emptiness about like, I just want that level of happiness again. If you choose the path of entrepreneurship, it is okay to not love every part of the journey. It is okay to love a business and then realize it is okay to pass the baton over. Alex Lieberman is the co-founder of the daily email newsletter, Morning Brew. From starting it while he was a student and then turning it into a business valued at $75 million, Alex discusses the different stages of his career and teaches us the number one selling technique that everyone needs to master if they want to make it big. I'm Erica Kohlberg. This is Erica Taught Me. And today we're here with Alex Lieberman. You guys know that I love investing because you know that if your money is just sitting in a bank account, you're losing out to inflation every single year. That's why you invest it so that it grows for you without you having to put in any extra work. I've been using an investing app called Webull for almost four years, and I had them do something really special for my listeners. By using my link to sign up today, you can get between six to 12 fractional shares for free. All you need to do is open an account and deposit any amount, even a dollar, to claim your free shares. So just by depositing a dollar, you'll get between 6 to 12 free fractional shares. And if you're wondering what to actually invest in, we talk all about investing in episode 28, so go ahead and listen to that episode. To claim your free shares through my special link, just go to ericataughtme.com invest or click the link in the show notes. 
And it's Erica with a K. Again, that's ericataughtme.com slash invest. So I think your path is really interesting how you made the decision to quit a very comfortable job at Morgan Stanley to pursue Morning Brew, which you started while you were in college. So can you talk about that moment where you decided, okay, I'm going to quit and make this bet on myself? Yeah. I think to say it was a moment probably gives me too much credit. It was, unless you consider eight months a moment, because it was probably an eight-month process of, honestly, me just being pretty directionless and kind of anxious about what do I do? Um, Because on one hand, I'd basically been preparing my whole life to work at Morgan Stanley. My dad worked in sales and trading. My mom worked in sales and trading. My grandpa worked in sales and trading. So that was all that I knew. And in a lot of ways, I wasn't open-minded to what else was out there. I just knew I wanted to be in sales and trading because that's what my family did. And so I was in my dream job at the time. But on the other hand, I wasn't feeling fulfilled in my dream job. I felt like my creative muscles weren't being used. And I realized that was really important for me. And the other thing I realized is I would get home every day from work at probably 7 p.m. And I'd work on morning brew for three or four hours. And I'd feel way more energized in those three or four hours than the previous 12 hours that I was working uh, in sales and trading. And I remember for months straight talking to my mom almost every day after work being like, I don't know what I'm doing because I feel like I'm diluting myself and I'm not realizing my abilities. Up to that point, whether it was in college or in my internships, the way that I always viewed my success, and I feel like this is a cliche thing to say for people who don't view themselves as geniuses, is like, I'm relatively smart, but there are people a lot smarter than me. And my view is I had to work outwork everyone to succeed. And so that was always kind of like my MO of how I viewed myself. And my issue was I was doing Morgan Stanley and I was doing Morning Brew. And I felt like I couldn't use my edge to outwork everyone because in the hours after work, I was doing Morning Brew. But if I really wanted to outwork people, I would have stayed at the office and worked on Morgan Stanley and vice versa. If I really wanted to go all out on Morning Brew, well, I would have worked on Morning Brew during the day. And so I knew that there was going to kind of be a fork in the road where at some point I was going to either stay at Morgan Stanley and get rid of Morning Brew or go to Morning Brew and leave Morgan Stanley. And I would say the way that I ultimately ended up making the decision was first, my co-founder, Austin, who's two years younger, he kind of expedited our time frame of having to make this decision because he had to decide whether he was going to go into investment banking. And so when he decided he had to make the decision, we met up in New York City and talked about, I remember it like yesterday, it was we were in Union Square at one of these really old bars talking about if we were going to go full-time. And we knew if we weren't going to go full-time, this was kind of just going to either become a side project or it was going to stop. And the timeline was expedited. And the way that I thought about going full-time on Morning Brew was, first, I thought about what would I regret more? Would I more regret staying at Morgan Stanley and seeing some other entrepreneurs basically build Morning Brew because they had decided to give the time to it? Or would I more regret going and doing Morning Brew full-time, it fails, and then I'm looking for a job. And when I asked myself that question, the answer was kind of strikingly obvious, which was I would far more regret staying at Morgan Stanley and then seeing someone else build the business that we simply didn't build because we weren't willing to risk the time. The second way I thought about it was, what would my options be? So in a worst-case scenario, what would my options be? And so I said, the worst-case scenario here is I go do 
Morning Brew full-time and it fails because most businesses fail, in that, in the event of that happening, what are my options? I said, first, if Morning Brew fails, hopefully I've networked well in the New York City startup scene and I made connections where either I could start go start another company or I could go work for another startup. And I was like, okay, if that doesn't happen, then what, what's my next option? And my next option was, okay, maybe I could go back to Morgan Stanley and actually I am a more qualified professional because I've built a business, I've raised money, I've assessed really hard decisions, I've managed personnel. And I went like five layers deep of options. And I said, if none of these options exist after building Morning Brew and it failing, it's actually not a Morning Brew problem. It's an Alex Lieberman problem of not keeping my options open. And the third, and I would say probably like the, the thing that truly drove my decision was just like my perception on life switched uh, after junior year of college. So a week before junior year of college, my dad passed away suddenly. Um, he was 47. He was in great athletic shape. He was basically, he was just like a rep, I was a real replica of him. And he passed away from a stroke, no warning signs, nothing hereditary that should have said that he would, that would happen to him. And after that happened, you know, it sounds again, very cliche, but like my brain very much just flipped where first, what came out of that was everything that used to be like a problem or an issue to get upset about in life, all of a sudden was no longer a problem. Like things just didn't really rattle me or annoy me anymore because I realized how little they actually mattered in the context of life. The second thing I thought about was, I don't know when my last day is going to be, and I need to really be intentional about spending my time on average on things that really give me energy. And if I don't, then I haven't learned anything from a really tragic experience. And my goal is to learn something from it so I can actually find positives in what was generally a really negative experience. And so that's a long-winded way of saying over eight months, those were the sorts of mental processes I went through to make the decision. I've heard this part of your story before, how you made the decision. And first of all, I'm so sorry for your loss. Um, when you told the story before, I felt so seen and heard actually, because when I was going through the process of quitting my job, the two assessments I made were very similar. Like ultimately, I decided that I feared regret more than I feared failure. And then I also did the calculation of, hey, what's the best case scenario and what's the worst case scenario? And obviously for us, it turned out well. How much were you thinking about the risk of it? Did you have enough saved up? Was Morning Brew already making enough money? Yeah, I think you bring up a really good point because something that I think is really important to call out is that I come from just a place of privilege where I did not have to worry um, about money nearly as much as so many entrepreneurs do have to worry about it. You know, so I grew up in upper middle class or upper class neighborhood in New Jersey. And when I quit my job at Morgan Stanley, I knew that I wouldn't have to necessarily worry about costs in the short term. So for the first eight months of working on Morning Brew full-time, when I basically went from having my finance salary to zero salary, um, my mom covered my rent, right? And so when your mom covers your rent in New York City, obviously a lot of the financial anxiety that exists uh, dissipates. And so I call that out because I don't want to 
create a perception for people that like, oh, Alex took this massive risk. Sure, it was some level of risk. Like I left my job, but like it is not nearly as much risk as a lot of entrepreneurs take who are not in the same sort of financial situation when they they go to start their business. In terms of were we making money, we were not making money when I quit my job. Uh, when I quit my job, we had 30,000 subscribers to our newsletter. So obviously it wasn't a massive amount, but it was still 30,000 people. So our view was the riskiest part of the business was behind us as in product market fit. Like we knew that was, there was clear appetite for what we were writing about. And we knew that there were enough examples of other newsletters in the past that had made money via advertising on their subscribers that we felt confident that we could do that as well. I would say there are many things as an entrepreneur that I don't believe that I'm strong at, but I would say there are one or two that I I know that I am extremely capable at. And one of those is storytelling, mm -hmm. which I would view another word for that as sales. So I just knew if you gave me the opportunity to be in a room with an advertiser and pitch the 30,000 subscribers we had at the time, there was zero doubt in my mind that I'd be able to find a way to generate money from that. And so I would say there was risk in the sense that we hadn't monetized the business, but there wasn't risk in the sense that like we already had traction. And so when a lot of friends or early stage entrepreneurs ask me, should I quit my job? I think it is, it is so impossible to give advice because it is so contextually dependent on what is their idea? Where's the idea at? What is the level of risk that they're able to assume based on both their financial situation, but also where they are in life? Like that's another thing to call out. I was, when I went full-time on Morning Brew, I was 22. I didn't have a family, didn't have kids, didn't have a mortgage. And so another way that I thought about my decision was like, if I don't go and do this full-time now, there is never going to be a convenient time in life. It's only going to get harder and riskier to make this move. So that's another thing I'll say is like, I was at the lowest risk point in life in terms of the life cycle of a person to make this decision. Yeah. Maybe we take a few steps back then into how you actually founded Morning Brew with your co-founder. Yeah. So um, as I had mentioned, I the dream was originally to be in finance. Um, it's interesting. When I think about the dream was to be in finance, I don't think I was actually, I'd put that much thought into my dream. Like I think now today when I think about what, you know, what do I want to do? What is my dream? I really like weigh everything, like my skills, what gives me energy. Like all, that was not part of the calculus at the time. The calculus simply was family is really important to me. My family does this. I want to be like my family. I'm going to do this. That was it. And so I ended up going to uh, the University of Michigan. I was in the business program there. I did all of these finance internships uh, each year. So after freshman year, sophomore year, junior year. And the way it works is after junior year, you have your internship. And if you, especially if you're working at a big bank, if you do well in your internship, you're given an offer back and you join after your senior year, which means that you don't have to recruit for a job during your senior year if all things go well. And that's what had happened with me. I interned at Morgan Stanley in sales and trading. I got the job offer. And it's funny, during, as I reflect on that, something that I very much remember from that process was I was late on the day of getting my job offer and it has pushed me as much as possible in life to be as prompt as possible because it was one of the most embarrassing moments of my life being late during 
that experience. I basically sprinted 40 blocks in Manhattan in a full suit and tie with uh, a, a bag on my back only to be 15 minutes late and then sweating profusely the whole time that they were giving me a job offer. It, it was a whole thing. <laughs> but uh, all of this to say that when I got that job offer, like I thought I had peaked in life. Like that was my dream. Like growing up at my home in New Jersey, I, I always had whiteboards in my room and my whiteboard had my list, my bucket list or my list of goals in life. One of those goals was be the best trader in the world. Again, I had no idea what that meant. I didn't know if I even had the skills for it, but that was just my goal. And then I was in my senior year at Michigan. I didn't have to recruit for a job. I only had to take three classes my senior year. And so basically I started passing the time by helping students prepare for job interviews. And there were basically two things that led to me writing a newsletter. One is I would ask students, how do you keep up with the business world? And every student would say, I read the Wall Street Journal and I read it because that's what my parents told me to. Like everyone would say they read legacy business news because it was just an expectation, not because it was a desire. And I heard it enough times where I was like, this is kind of crazy. Like these kids are about to spend half of their life and half of their waking hours working in business and they don't love the content they're reading about the space they're working in. The second thing more selfishly was like, I need to do something to keep my brain moving fast because I don't want to be in a place where after I graduate and I join Morgan Stanley, I'm just operating at a slower speed. So I basically said, okay, I'm going to start writing a business newsletter. I'm going to comb through all of like the old school business sources uh, for a few hours a day. And then I'm going to pick the top five stories and I'm going to write them in these compact 50 to 250 word blurbs that read like we're having a conversation. And then I'll include some other like non-newsy stuff. I'll include a riddle of the day. I'll include a business word of the day, just like fun business adjacent stuff. I started writing this thing. It was not an email newsletter at the time, right? Like it wasn't like a template in an email. It was, I got a Microsoft Word template. I found a picture of a bear and a bull fighting on Google Images. <laughs> it had a watermark going across. So I was definitely not allowed to use it, but I did. I would fill in the template. I would convert it to a PDF and then I would attach this PDF to an email I sent out. And the email I'd send out was to a listserv I created. It was marketcorner at umich.edu. And um, if you wanted to sign up for my newsletter, there's no website to do it. You had to reach out to me and say, I heard about your newsletter. Can you add my email to the listserv? That's how it worked. And somehow it grew, not to a massive number, but after a few months of doing it, there were 500 people on the list. And I was like, okay, clearly there's enough appetite where it's worth me spending more time on this because it's impossible to sign up for this product. Like I make it wildly difficult, yet people are still signing up. And so I'd sent out an email in December of 2014, so my first semester senior year, saying, hey, I'm thinking about taking this newsletter a little bit more seriously. Does anyone want to help out? And Austin Reef had reached out to me. He emailed me saying, hey, I really like what you're doing. Have some ideas for how to make it better. And I still have this email, original email from my co-founder saved in a, in a folder. At some point, I have to actually put it in a frame. Uh, and the way the conversation went is I said, okay, sounds good. Let's meet, meet up to chat about it. How about after BPL? BPL is Beer Pong League, which because we were both in the same fraternity and we had Beer Pong League on a weekly <laughs> basis and we met up after Beer Pong League and we we spoke. And what I realized was I just loved the way that my co-founder Austin thought. I generally always thought about myself as like a divergent thinker, super creative, thinking about 50 different ideas, but like, you know, you really need to rein me in to stay focused. Austin was the exact opposite brain. He was super convergent when 
he always views himself as like, he's at point A, he needs to get to point B. There's three sub goals in between these points. He's going to solely focus on those goals and everything else is noise. And again, we weren't even thinking about it as a business at the time, but I was just like, he is such a complimentary brain to mine. I just want to keep like, keep him around. And so brought Austin on as a co-founder of this side project. A lot of people don't know. We actually had two other co-founders for Morning Brew. There were four co-founders originally. And the two other co-founders, super nice guys, they just ended up leaving the business in the first six months, which I don't think is that atypical when you start a business because a few people oftentimes Mm -hmm. just realize it's a lot of work. And if you're not crazy interested about the business, you're just not going to have the desire to put in all that time. So that's what happened. Austin and I launched Morning Brew as a proper email newsletter with a website and a template in March of 2015. And that was the beginning of the journey. And just, you know, to give a sense of where we are today, you know, the business today has 300 employees. Uh, We have, you know, more than a dozen different products, Uh, the teams all over the country, business you know, last year did 41 million in revenue. The goal is to do more, 50% more at least this year. Um, and our goal is simply to become the business media brand for our generation, akin to what the Wall Street Journal or CNBC was for our parents' generation. I love that. I've worked with a lot of founders as a lawyer, and I find that a lot of times founders don't actually hire the lawyers at the right time. So it's usually a handshake deal. Like, hey, let's do 50-50. Yep. Were you hiring lawyers at that time and saying, hey, Austin, here's your percentage. Here's what we're negotiating? Kind of. Um, we didn't hire lawyers per se. There was a, so the Michigan Law School, I think it's like a pretty well-ranked law school. Yes. And there was a legal clinic there that basically would offer pro bono services two student entrepreneurs at Michigan. So it was current like L1s and L2s with like a, a faculty advisor who was a practicing lawyer. And so they did all of like the docs for us. Mm. So they did, uh, you know, like equity docs. They did the uh, articles of, of incorporation, like all of these things. And I would say in retrospect, it was good enough. It definitely was like, you know, probably not top dollar work that we definitely had to like undo some of those things later on. Um, we were originally formed as like as a Michigan LLC. At some point, we converted to being a Delaware C-Corp, which is what most, most startups in the U.S. end up being because yeah. Delaware is considered to be most favorable to startups in their laws. So we did, but I would say, was it the top lawyers? No, but it was good enough where, yeah, it was spelled out how much equity I had versus how much Austin had versus how much our other co-founders had. But I would call it, you know, it was probably B minus work. <laughs> what other things looking back at those very early days would you consider B minus work or maybe missteps? Yeah, I would say, you know, it's hindsight's 2020. And so I'm going to say something and then probably say it's hindsight, but we are so much more ambitious about the business today than we were at the time. So, like, if you were to ask me what's my ambition for the business today, it is that Morning Brew is going to be a multi billion dollar company and we have a path to get there. At the time, our ambition was, there was no far out ambition. It was, let's just keep writing a really good newsletter. Let's find ways to grow that newsletter. And we weren't even thinking about making money at the time. So I would say just like our view of how big our world was or how big we could be was just super, super small. Like the aperture was not wide for what we could become. I would say the second thing, and this was something I think that plagued me personally for not just in the very early days, but throughout the business was the ability to prioritize um, and stay disciplined and focused 
Uh, and this is why I feel so grateful, especially in the early days to have Austin, because I think if left to my own device, I would have created like six different companies. And so I think, you know, to be a great startup founder or set of founders, you, you really do need this balance of the left brain and the right brain where like, I, I would say in the early days I was the creative firepower and Austin was like, you know, if I was a racehorse, he was the jockey with the blinders that you put the blinders on me. And so I would say there were many times in the early days that one, I was not able to prioritize well. I didn't spend my time wisely. I once spoke to the co-founder of FanDuel, the, the sports gambling company, and he's built, he's now running three businesses at once. And I'm like, how do you have a life if you're running three other companies? Basically like, I actually have more of a life today than I did when I was running FanDuel because I realized 80% of my time spent when I was working on FanDuel was wasted time. And so now in these three businesses, I just spend my time on the 20% that was actually moving the needle. And so I'd say, yeah, I wasted so much time in the early days spending time on things that I probably shouldn't have spent time on. Mm -hmm. And also I think I've become a less emotional thinker over time. In the early days, I would get very excited about things and then I would try to like defend my ideas to the death. I would be very stubborn about it. And I think over time, I just realized I got, I became more cognizant that, okay, I get ramped up and I get emotional about things I'm excited about that can make me a worse decision maker. And so maybe what I need to do is actually create time before I actually make decisions on things I'm excited about, because it's going to be impossible for me to actually make decisions clearly and have sound discussions and arguments with people. And so that was something I think I was very bad about in the early days is I was too emotional of a decision maker. If you're listening, let me guess. You have a passcode on your phone. And let me take another wild guess and say that you have a password on your computer. But why are so many of us okay just being completely unprotected online? We have no idea who has all our personal information online and whether it's the good guys or the bad guys who might be selling your information or worse. We're talking spammers, telemarketers, robocallers, people who want to know more about you and even where you live. My sister had her data leaked online and because of that, her identity was stolen and it was a nightmare to deal with. We had to lock down all her credit cards just for starters. That's why I'm excited to tell you about Aura, a sponsor of this episode. Aura can identify data brokers exposing your info and submit opt-out requests on your behalf. When I discovered it, I knew I had to try it out just to see if my information had been leaked online, which they let me see instantly after I signed up. And get this, for my audience, they're offering a free 14-day trial so you can see if your personal information has been leaked online. To find out now, go to ericataughtme.com slash Aura to claim your free 14-day trial. Erica with a K and Aura is spelled A-U-R-A. Again, that's ericataughtme.com slash aura. And I'll also leave the link in the show notes. What did it take for you to improve as a decision maker, as a leader? I would say, uh, you know, proverbially like getting punched in the face. Uh, I think actually me moving out of the CEO role into the chairman role was actually the biggest wake up call of areas where I could grow and get better. Because, you know, the big reason that I moved out of the CEO role was by the time that I'd moved out of the role, I wasn't really doing the job of a traditional CEO. And what I mean by that is, I think there are 
two or three very clear stages of what it means to be the CEO of a company. I think the first stage is being what I would call the builder in chief. It is your job, full stop, is to take an idea and get it to product market fit. Whatever it takes, your priority should be around what is the clearest path to me taking an idea, turning it into a product, and putting that product into the world and then iterating it enough where I know that this product can grow organically on its own without having to spend a lot on marketing for it to grow. I think at that stage of business was really where I felt most comfortable and most excited. Stage two of the business, what I would argue is the delegator in chief, Mm -hmm. uh, where you're still doing some things, but your job largely becomes managing others, long-term planning over one, three, five years, setting quarterly goals for your team and building out a senior leadership team around you. That second stage I think for a long time, I acted as if that second stage just doesn't exist or you're not supposed to turn into that stage because what I realized is as we grew, my attention really ended up just being focused on building the new shiny thing. So after the newsletters, it was me figuring out how do we build out our podcasts or it was how do we build Morning Brew's education business. I think in some ways I became like a chief innovation officer more than a CEO. And you know, I would say the discussions with my co-founder Austin over the period where basically it was like, okay, maybe we should rethink what the roles are in the company. It was super humbling for me. It was really difficult because it basically felt in a lot of ways like, okay, I've basically become inadequate in my role. And I would say, you know, in some ways I'm probably too hard on myself. I would say a lot of times your body leads you where it wants to go. So I think in some ways my body was just telling me this stage of CEO is not the stage that I necessarily enjoy. My body was leading me to building new things because that's truly what I love. Mm -hmm. But in other ways, I think that it was a wake-up call that I really need to be thoughtful about how I spend my time and really need to be thoughtful about understanding what is the job of whatever role I am assuming and knowing whether that role is for me or not for me. And so I actually think in the in the year and a half for just under a year and a half since I moved from CEO to chairman, I've become a way clearer thinker because I've been able to reflect on kind of where my where my thinking was either not proactive enough or not clear enough while I was CEO in the last few years of being CEO. Yeah. That's so interesting. So just so that the viewers get a full picture of the story, yeah. once you quit your job, at that point you had 30,000 email subscribers. Yep. And now looking back at last year, you did over 40 million in revenue. What was the path between that? Yeah. So just, I guess, to kind of like phase it out, the mission of the business has always been the same, which was empower the modern business leader. And when we think about modern business leader, it's the 21 to 40-year-old person who works in business or around business. Empower the modern business leader with engaging and accessible content. Why engaging and accessible? One, there's more competition in content than ever before. So it has to be accessible or else consumers are not going to consume it. And engaging because our view was that old school business content was dry and it felt like you were receiving content from a robot. That's always been the mission. Now, if I look at the business in kind of chapters of a book, chapter one was we were a product. We weren't even a business. We were a a newsletter that went out every day and had subscribers. Chapter two was a newsletter as a business. That was when we had quit our job or I quit my job. Austin decided not to go into investment banking. And we said, hey, we need to make money so that we can actually keep doing this. 
During that period, we raised a small round of funding. We raised $750,000 from family and friends. Uh, that was the only ra- money we ever raised for the business. And that was chapter two, which was newsletter as a business. That's when the cycle was not just step one, write a newsletter, step two, grow that newsletter. It was step one and step two. And then step three, convince brands why they should pay us money to get in front of our really high quality subscribers. That was the period of time where basically through trial and error, I had to just learn sales. Chapter three was we went from newsletter as a business to a newsletter business. So that is when we went from one daily newsletter to several newsletters. And the direction we went with our newsletters was we went into B2B newsletters. So we basically started creating newsletters around specific industries or job functions that people had because our view was that creating newsletters around, say, retail or marketing we could command more advertising dollars from retail companies or marketing companies that want to get into in front of a very specific audience. The next chapter was a media company. So the idea was we had done newsletters. That was our core competency. But one, advertisers want to advertise in more than just newsletters. Two, consumers don't just consume content in newsletters. So we're missing an entire part of the market who consumes content through podcasts, video shows, et cetera. And three, just in terms of our ambition of the company, as our ambition was getting bigger and bigger, we realized like we didn't just want to be a newsletter business. We didn't want to just be a trick, uh, a one trick pony. And then I would say chapter four, which is, I would say we're, we kind of sit between chapter three and four right now. I think we're still trying to prove that we're not a one trick pony. Like I think we're still trying to prove that Morning Brew can be a great multimedia brand and mm-hmm. not just a great newsletter brand. Chapter four is, going from media brand to consumer brand. And what's the difference? I consider a consumer brand to be a company that gets consumers to pay for something, uh, right? The way that we historically made money was through advertisers paying us. We have, in the last two years, introduced products that consumers can actually pay for. And what that is at Morning Brew is education. Uh, We basically have said that we think business education is broken, that the MBA uh, is a waste of money and time for the vast majority of people, not everyone. And we think we can rebuild business education for an audience who is qualified to end up taking business education courses through us. So we have cohort-based courses uh, that range from leadership courses to quantitative courses to a course by me on how to build a career as a creator. And that is the phase of us turning into a consumer brand. And so those have been the phases. And you know, today, I would say our biggest goal is building out audio, video, uh, and social franchises outside of newsletters that engage people with the business world, as well as turning Morning Brew's education business into at least an eight-figure business. Yeah. Do you see a big shift when the markets shift of ad spend? So I'd say we are definitely seeing some pressure Right now, and I'd say the biggest pressure is actually coming from like crypto advertisers. Mm-hmm. You know, we're in a crypto bear market right now. And for a period of time, the advertising dollars spent by crypto or Web3 companies was, I would actually argue, um, irrational. It was like an irrationally high amount of money. So that has calmed down a lot. In terms of other advertisers, our B2B business, which has been a thesis for us, our B2B business is still very strong because our view is like a marketing tech company, the last budget that they're going to cut is dollars that are spent on getting in front of marketers who are the most qualified people to buy their product, right? So we think of advertising in terms of one way to look at it is like top of funnel versus bottom of funnel advertising. Top of funnel is 
known as brand awareness advertising. And it's when advertisers are generally spending on TV, on out of home. And the whole idea is increasing awareness or increasing um, perception of a brand, right? Like these are Super Bowl commercials are generally considered brand awareness advertising. You're not trying to back out how much in sales did you drive from your ad. You're trying to get people to look at you in either a better way or just to know about you. Bottom of funnel or direct response advertising is advertisers are putting a dollar into an ad expecting more than a dollar out in sales. Generally, what we've seen is in a recession, brand awareness advertising is what's cut first. Direct response or bottom of funnel advertising is cut last. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I'd say brand awareness, we've started to see pullback from advertisers. Direct response is still very strong. I would also say that the market is stronger right now than it was at the beginning of the pandemic. March of 2020, there was a period of time where Austin and I thought that like, not that we were going to go out of business, but that our revenue was going to be down 50% on the year. Uh, March 15th is the day I remember moving from New York City out back into New Jersey with our families. And I remember being on the phone with Austin. It probably was March 16th or 17th, where we were basically brainstorming how were we going to make money? Because what had happened was we found out about probably at 9 p.m. one night that the next day's advertiser who's going to spend, call it $75,000 to advertise in our daily newsletter the next day, was pulling out of the sponsorship. And so that $75,000 lit on fire. And then from that point to call it 48 hours later, another 15 advertisers pulled their dollars. And so when that happened, Austin and I were like, oh my God, like we had always heard about what happens in a down market with advertising, but like it is happening and we really have to think about how are we going to make short-term money so we don't have to cut people. Now, the nice thing about our business is running a newsletter business is generally a very low cost business. Over the history of the company, we've only ever needed the call, the cost of goods, the cost to put out our newsletter has only ever been three or four people, three or four writers. And that has not had to change whether we had one, 10,000, 100,000, or 4 million subscribers. So the cost of running a newsletter is really lean, which means that the profit margin has just increased over time. What that helped us with is when the pandemic started, we were spending a lot on paid marketing, like we were spending let's call it $500,000 plus a month on paid marketing. And that is the type of cost that you can cut very quickly. So when everything was happening in the world, we just cut our marketing spend to basically zero for a period of time because we were like, well, we're not getting compensated by advertisers who will pay us for acquiring customers. So why are we going to spend on acquiring customers? That all said, Austin and I, we brainstorm everything from a donation model to selling Morning Brew swag. We, We brainstormed every type of business we could go into and actually, you know, people say sometimes the worst times in business is when really special things happen. And, you know, people will allude to Airbnb, Uber were started during, you know, the Great Recession. And I, I think that is largely true because one, during down economic periods, you have to be really I, would, I think you just have to be a better operator of your business. You can't be as loose with how you spend money because you don't know that dollars are going to be there in the future for you to raise from investors. And I think the second is just scarcity breeds creativity. And so we are asked as we're against a wall trying to figure out how do we make short-term money so we don't have to lay people off. During that period of time is when we came up with the idea for education business. And now our education business is, I would say, the non-media part of our business that we are most bullish on that we think could end up being a $100 million company within itself. 
I recently went on an anniversary getaway with the husband and it was beautiful. Here's everything I got for free. We got free business class tickets for an international flight, which meant, yep, you guessed it, I got free access to the lounge where we could kick things off with a glass of champagne. Then we got a free stay at a five-star hotel where we could relax and go to the beach. Okay, so now I'm sure you're wondering how I got it for free, and you know I don't gatekeep, so here's the insider knowledge you need to know. I did it by signing up for a free built credit card. Built is a credit card that lets you earn points just for paying your rent, and there's no extra fee. And when I say free, I mean free. There's no annual fee for the credit card, and they don't charge a transaction fee for paying your rent with the card. You'll also earn two times the points on travel and three times the points on dining. Once you get your points, you can transfer them to travel partners like airlines and hotels to then get the free business class flights or five-star hotels like I did. To sign up for this card, go to ericataughtme.com slash built. Erica is with a K and built is B-I-L-T. Or to make it easier, go to the link in the show notes. Again, that's ericataughtme.com slash built. It is true what you're saying about the scarcity mindset and how a lot of times the best businesses come out of this bootstrap mentality. Can you talk about how, first of all, you raised very little funding relative to the business that you've been able to scale it to. How were you thinking about bootstrapping the business? How, where you wanted to spend money? What were the key employees? Yeah. So, I mean, first of all, my co-founder and I didn't even know anything other than bootstrapping. Like, it wasn't like we were weighing, oh, you know, should we be a bootstrap business or a business that raises a lot of venture money? Like, that that wasn't really a consideration. You know, there was a brief period of time where, like, should we raise money from venture capital firms? And candidly, at the time, you know, we had heard so many horror stories about raising from venture capital firms. And we'd also heard horror stories specifically about media companies raising from venture capital firms and it being a total mess. And so... For us, we were just like, we don't want that to happen to us. We want to be, you know, the captains of our own journey. And so we ended up, you know, raising that 750K. And candidly, I think even before we had to sell advertisers on why they should spend one morning brew, I would say this was our first foray into selling also. And this is why to this day, I think, especially for an early stage entrepreneur, the number one skill is being amazing at storytelling and selling. It is 90% of your job in the early days, selling our investors and why they should put money into the business, into a business that two college students started, were not full-time on yet, were not making money from, had no media experience. So that was a hard sell. Selling employees on why they should join a company that is a media company. Media companies generally are not known as being money-making machines. Uh, convincing someone to leave a stable job for a non-stable job and then convincing advertisers. So like it was all sales in the early days. But I would say for us, once we landed on bootstrapping, then it was selling anyone in our network who would listen to us on raising the money for the business. And I would say our mindset was very much one that every dollar or resource we put time into had to make sense within the context of making this a real business. So I outlined it earlier, but basically for the first three years of the company, when we were just a newsletter, it was all about just focusing on making this newsletter a business. Step one, write the best daily business newsletter in the world, bar none, because if we don't do that, nothing else matters. Step two, get the right people. So get the modern business leader, which at the time was 
college students and post-college business minds reading this great newsletter. And then step three was convince brands why they should spend money getting in front of this great reader who they ultimately want to turn into their customer. And so every dollar that we spent, it was either on an employee who would make our newsletter better, who would get more organic or paid growth, or it was on a seller to support me in selling advertisers. So that was very much how we were thinking about it. And then the second was, if we're not spending on employees, it would be spending a dollar on marketing to grow our newsletter so then we can make money on our newsletter. So I would say we were just like very practical in thought where we always had to know where our money was going and know how it was fueling this three-step circle. And we were just like obsessed about this three-step circle. For the longest time, we literally had a PowerPoint slide of uh, Lion King, like circle of life of, what's his name, Rafiki, of Rafiki lifting (laughs) Simba up and having these three steps as the circle of life of our business. And we were just obsessed and relentless about it. I'd say the second way, you know, we operated our business probably differently than how a venture business would operate is every new thing we created after our daily newsletter had to be profitable extremely quickly. So, you know, for some venture scale businesses, right, they don't end up actually making a profit for decades, for for some of them ever, like they still haven't broken even. For us, when we went from our daily newsletter into our B2B newsletter, so it was first emerging tech brew, then it was retail brew, then it was marketing brew, we've gone on and on. We basically said, this needs to pay back the investment in this newsletter. So the investment being a few writers, an editor, maybe a part of a growth person, a part of a salesperson. This new product needs to pay itself back in less than a year or we're not doing it. Like that was always the way that we thought about our business. And if it wouldn't pay itself back, we would not make that investment. And I would say the nice thing about that is when we got to March of 2020, we actually had, I would say, a lot more buffer to work with Mm -hmm. than a lot of companies have. And so I would say like bootstrapping very much created a disciplined mindset around how you spend every unit of dollar or every unit of time. Um, And I think it also, it it taught you to get really creative with things. Like I think even some of the ways that we were able to grow Morning Brew in the early days, it came out of scarcity. Like, you know, our referral program, Morning Brew's referral program has been super successful. I would say of our four and a half million subscribers, more than 450,000 individual subscribers have gotten at least one referral. And that's huge, obviously, in organically growing the business. But up to that point, no newsletter companies had like a referral program. Like it sounds so obvious today, most newsletters have a referral program. But at the time, Austin and I, because we were like, we're not gonna be able to spend a lot on growing our audience in the early days, we basically, I remember we'd spend times brainstorming, what are a hundred ideas? Like we will force ourselves to stay in this room until we have a hundred ideas of how we could grow our audience. Once we come up with those a hundred ideas, let's go to the top 10 that we think are actually going to move the needle. And it was that type of scarcity that I think created really like game change. Some of our most creative ideas that we've had to date, because the alternative would have been, say we're sitting on $5 million. It's very easy for us to just say, hey, you know, let's allocate 60% of that $3 million to paid acquisition on Facebook and Instagram. If it doesn't work, we'll spend more money on the next thing. We didn't have that option. Mm -hmm. So where did the majority of the initial $750,000 investment go to? Was it just the team? 
Yes, it was 100% the, the team. Uh, so our first hire ever was a writer. The first person to ever leave the business was a writer. He, he left three months after starting. Um, and I think it was largely, we just hired the wrong person. And what I will say is I can't tell you how many times we've messed up in hiring. And I know we're going to mess up in the future, but that's also why I realized like if you can become incredible at hiring, it is the superpower of superpowers. If you truly can become a special hirer. So we hired our first person and it was uh, a writer. Uh, it was someone who actually at the time, uh, ironically worked at Business Insider, which is the company that acquired us. And he was our only writer on the business. At the time I was doing a lot of the writing and I was editing. So I was editing his work. And three months into the job, he came in one day and he's like, I can't do this. He's like, uh, you know, I, I'm physically sick from this job. Uh, I'm working too much. You know, I'm coming in at 8 a.m. I'm done at 1 a.m. Uh, and he was right. Like it, it was not sustainable what we were doing. But at least for us and I, right, we had a bunch of equity in the business where we're like, we are fighting for our equity right now. For him, you know, he had equity, but not meaningful enough to like push him over that line. So he left. The next hire we made was a writer as well. Uh, we had to replace him. And what we ended up finding, especially in the early days, is um, a, most of our writers were not journalists by training. They were not writers by training. There were people who were like business-interested, funny people who happened to be good at writing. So we hired this person. That was our first hire. Then our second hire was um, an engineer slash growth person. So he was the person who built our referral program, uh, built our website, all of those things. And so, yeah, I would say this, the 750K, very, he also realized how quickly 750K gets spent, like <laughs> instantly. Like now we've realized in the business how quickly like $10 million gets spent in costs. But yeah, it was all either editorial folks, growth folks, or engineering folks. Though That was the focus in the beginning. Then I would say we hired our first salesperson, probably at employee number six or seven. So because I was just doing sales um, for a while and we hired our first salesperson to help support me in going out and um, making money through advertising deals. Uh, so yes, yeah, 750K went very quickly and we were very, I would say, fortunate in the sense that we were able to start monetizing the business well enough to have money coming in before the 750K ran out. Yeah. At what point did the potential acquisition from Business Insider come into play and what was your decision-making process around that? Yeah. So we had been approached a few times about possible investors or acquirers of the business. I would say from 2018 to mid-2019, our conversations with Insider started in November, December of 2019. And the way it came about was, and this is why you know, again, it's such an old adage and cliche. It's about who you know, not what you know, but like, this is the example of that. Our first office uh, was in downtown Manhattan in financial district uh, at 85 Broad Street, which is actually, it was uh, WeWork's largest uh, office in terms of square footage. And we were there for a long time. And in the early days of the brew, one of the ways going back to like how we had brainstormed all these ways to grow our newsletter one of the ways we had brainstormed was getting Morning Brew's newsletter syndicated on other business news sites. So would there be a way to convince, you know, a business insider to publish Morning Brew's newsletters every day on their website and then just have a small call to action about if you want to read Morning Brew, sign up. Mm -hmm. And for 
I think two years straight, I was trying to convince them to do this. There was an editor there who I every week would email saying, how do we make this work? And at some point he just got so annoyed by my persistence that he introduced me to this other person who worked at Business Insider at the time. And this person ended up going on to run consumer subscription at Business Insider, went on to be the chief of staff to the CEO of Business Insider, ultimately became the CEO of Business Insider. And it was this person who became kind of the champion of our deal. So in November of 2019, he had messaged me basically saying, hey, are you at all interested in having a conversation about partnering in a bigger way, which partnering in a bigger way is code. always always the phrase that's used, uh, the code word for saying, hey, can we buy you guys? And I was like, you know, to be honest, Austin and I really aren't interested in this. We we love what we're doing. And, and Austin and, and my way of thinking about this, we were always like, why do we want to change what we're doing? Because we're getting all the things that we want right now. We want to be building something we're really excited about. We want to be working with a team and other people that we really enjoy. We don't want to worry about money. Uh, we want to be in control of our own destiny. And we're, we were always like, we have this right now. Why would we do something different? And so I basically said that to this person. And they, they were like, is there a number at which you would be open to having the conversation? And I remember being like, we'd be willing to have a conversation if the number's at least $50 million. And they were like, we'd be willing to have that conversation. And so the conversation started in November of 2019 and ended up being basically an 11-month process because we sold the business officially in October of 2020. And it was a long process, I think, one, because selling a business is just a grueling process no matter what. Mm -hmm. It becomes basically a full-time job. And second, because we sold our business during the pandemic. So we, we were in talks while March of 2020 was happening and the business was getting crushed. Like, you know, there were times where our talks kind of quieted because we were like, we're just trying to figure out our own businesses, let alone figure out this deal. Ultimately did the deal in October of 2020. Uh, and, you know, we're technically not owned by Business Insider. We're technically owned by Axel Springer, which is the company that it's a German media conglomerate that owns Insider, they own Politico, um, and they own a bunch of other European business media brands and classified companies as well. And so the deal was done in October of 2020. Remember, like it was yesterday. And uh, yeah, it was a crazy experience, both the process of selling it and realizing how grueling it was, um, and also realizing just like all the legal work, um, all of the tax-related work, like all of these things, but also what the process, the mental experience was like on the day of selling the company as well as after like what it felt like to have done that. Obviously, there's an argument to be made about, well, if you really think it's going to be a multi-billion dollar business, why didn't you just keep the majority equity and try to continue to build that out? What were you guys thinking in terms of the value that getting acquired could bring to the business? Yeah, I think there was a few things. I think part of it was, you know, going back to earlier how we were talking about when I moved from CEO to chairman, that was very much like a punch in the face moment of realizing that I don't think I had adapted mentally as well to the business as I should have. I think part of actually the deal in some ways was like a uh, survivor's instinct of realizing like my time is running short on the CEO role. I don't know what's going to happen after that. So let me uh, de-risk myself by selling a part of the business. I, I very much think like my body drove me to do that because of that concern. I think the other part um, was honestly like when going back to like why I decided to do this business full time and the perspective that I had around, you know, um, losing my dad, one of the things that 
I, you know, I will never uh, forget the experience of is basically promising my dad that I was going to take care of my family. Like that was a promise that I made to him that my mom, my grandparents, my sister will be fine no matter what. And so I kind of had always in my mind had done like back of the envelope math of how much money is that such that everyone is fine. And I knew that selling at the price at which we were discussing at the time would start to encroach on that. And so my view was, yes, hypothetically, like we could be a multi-billion dollar company, but there also is the chance that we fail. And I kind of thought about it in terms of regrets again, and I didn't want to regret not de-risking the business and getting greedy. Mm -hmm. So that was a big reason that we sold or that I uh, thought it was the right time to sell. And then I would say from a business perspective, you know, our goal at the time, you know, when we sold in October of 2020, we were, we had our daily newsletter. We had our B2B newsletters. We were just starting to do like podcasting, really focusing more on social, focusing more on video. And our view was that Insider as a partner could help accelerate that growth because Business Insider started as a newsletter originally. And then it became a full-fledged, not just like media brand in terms of a website with hundreds of millions of uniques a month, but also a very strong social presence, very large YouTube following, all these things. So that was a large part of why we did it as well. We thought that especially the the founder of the business had seen kind of this trajectory and we'd be able to learn from them the things that they got wrong in trying to scale from kind of like a one-trick pony to a full-on media brand. Were you and your co-founder, Austin, quite aligned in the thinking leading up to the acquisition? Or was one person more into the idea than the other? I would say we were both um, aligned in selling the business. Uh, I would argue that one of Austin's gifts is he's never an emotional thinker. And so I think it's hard when you're talking about selling a business for tens of millions of dollars to not be emotional and thought about that. And so I'd say in some ways I was still at the time emotional and like it was impossible for me to think perfectly clearly when I had this vision of just like selling a part of the business, having millions wired into a bank account. Whereas I think Austin is just gifted in this way of like, he was not emotional about it at all. Like he was very practical about the process. So I, I would say that's where we differed is he was actually just kind of more critical of the deal, not in the sense he didn't want to do it, but like really thinking through what are the trade-offs that we're making here because he wasn't at all emotional. And that's something that I've actually really enjoyed learning from him is how to be unemotional in my thinking. Yeah. I'm now I want to get to the fun part, which is that actual day that you signed the papers. And I've heard from some founders that that day felt quite empty. Yep. You would think the average person listening probably thinks if you sign papers, that means tens of millions of dollars are going to come into your bank accounts. That would be the best day in your life. What was that day like for you? Well, I guess I'm part of the trend. Uh, (laughs) It was, was, yeah, it was, I mean, it was pretty empty um, in the sense that, you know, I remember being in my mom's place in New Jersey. I remember my fiance and my mom being there with champagne bottles and balloons. (laughs) And I'm just like, you know, as kind of like, level-headed as possible. And I would say Austin and I are both that way where we're kind of in the highs and the lows of the business. We stay like pretty even. And I would say that's a good thing in the sense that I think it's almost a survival mechanism for founders to not get too jostled by the ride of building a business. But I think it can be a negative because you really become numb 
and it becomes hard to truly feel different parts of the journey. And so the way it worked is actually all of the paperwork had been signed or e-signed prior to that day. The, the, the day was when we were on a Zoom with uh, a few of the senior folks from Insider, uh, a few of the senior folks from Axel Springer, and then our lawyers. So it was probably, I don't know, like 16 boxes on Zoom. And what happens in the videos, we're like, we're all talking and then like they initiate the wires. So it's basically like them literally just like Axel Springer folks sending uh, an email to their bank saying, you can let this much money out of our bank account and into the information that uh, Alex and Austin gave us. And the number of times that uh, I had checked if it was the right information <laughs> for my bank account <laughs> was, uh, I'm already like a, uh, a an OCD ridden human being. I probably checked it like 15 times. Um, but anyway, they initiated the wires. You know, I took a screenshot of the Zoom that I still have on my computer. And I was like, I was happy, but I didn't, I don't think I felt any, on the happiness scale from like the most elated I've ever been in my life to the saddest I've ever been in my life. I was probably like a six or six and a half. Um, and I think, you know, why did I not feel uh, a 10? One is I would say a 10 is probably reserved for very, uh, you know, one or two moments in life. One could argue this is one of those moments but I just didn't feel a 10. I think part of it was because it was it was a gradual process, right? Like we'd been building up to this. We already knew the business was going to be valuable. We'd been working on this deal for 11 months, right? So it wasn't like we talked about the deal yesterday and then the money's in the account today. Like I think I'd probably been like visualizing and thinking about this amount of money for months already. I think the second part is I kind of probably already had this like deep down anxiety of like, I'm not... Like I'm not, I'm maybe not enjoying building the company as much as I once was. And I miss that feeling because I remember like in call it 2017, 2018 and 2019, like I didn't have much money, but I was so happy. And so like, I think some of it was like, I just had this anxiety and emptiness about like, I just want that level of happiness again. You know, there's always like kind of, you end up finding out like cliches end up being very true. Um, yeah. Like the, you know, the, the cliche of money doesn't buy you happiness and then people caveat it in different ways. Like I really just believe that money can enhance your life, but it is not going to replace emptiness that exists. And money only buys you base happiness up to the point which, in which you're no longer worried about money. So to me, once you've reached the threshold of you're living within your means and you're not thinking about your finances on a day-to-day -day basis then every inc incremental dollar is not going to uh, give you one incremental unit of happiness. And I've actually found that I've been more anxious about money after selling the company than before <laughs> really? in this really ironic state. And so I think, you know, what you can imagine is if every additional dollar is not bringing me happiness and I'm left with questions of, damn, I just want those feelings of happiness I had in the early days of building the business that I don't have today. I wonder what my position as CEO is today. Money is not helping to answer those questions. I think you're left confused in a lot of ways because you're also like money is never going to be the motivator moving forward. Was there anything tangible that you did splurge on just to make it feel a little more real? No. Nothing. <laughs> uh, I, I would say right after the deal, within the first six months of the deal, I mean, the only thing of value that I bought was a dog. 
but like I would have gotten a dog regardless. Maybe, maybe I splurged in the sense that I paid for the first pick in the litter, but like that wasn't like really a, a splurge. So we bought a dog. I'd say the only thing that I've really splurged on. So there was a period of time where I promised myself, uh, I, I've been into watches. Like I, I'm really into watches and my kind of two best watches were ones that, uh, I had either gotten as a graduation gift from college, so my uh, family had paid for, or a watch that my grandpa had given to me because he does not like watches. He was given a great watch as a gift, and he's he had not worn it once in 15 years, and he was like, <laughs> just have this. And we were talking a little earlier off camera about how you and I are both so invested in the creator economy, the creator space, how we're thinking about helping creators to build out businesses beyond just the platforms that they're on. What got you passionate about that? And so like the three things that we always focus on is distribution, it's infrastructure, and it's monetization. So it's said differently, hey, Katie, instead of spending eight hours this week cold emailing brands, asking them why they don't sponsor all of your content, how about our 70-person sales team does that for you? Hey, Katie, you want to level up your podcast setup and uh, your ability to produce and cut your podcasts so that you can use all of that derivative content on social. Hey, rather than you teaching yourself how to do it, spending thousands of dollars on equipment or hiring a producer, editor, or social person, how about we supply that for you? And then distribution. Hey, Katie, your content has clearly reached content market fit. You have 20,000 Instagram followers. You've gotten people to pay for your personal finance courses, your uh, personal finance planner. Why don't we accelerate that? We have four and a half million subscribers who we could plug you to tomorrow. What if we could grow you to a hundred thousand followers in six months rather than taking you rather than it taking you five years to get there? That is not necessarily going to be interesting to every creator. Some creators want to figure it all out on their own or they fear the idea of what it looks like to partner with a media company and give up control in some sense. But I think for many creators, I would actually argue for the majority of creators, there's an amazing symbiotic relationship that can exist. I agree. I mean, obviously, I don't know how many people in the audience know this, but I co-founded Creators Agency. We manage over 60 YouTubers and TikTokers. And the thing I've learned about creators is a lot of them just like the creative process about it. They didn't start it thinking of it as, oh, this is going to become a money-making business. They start it thinking, I'm passionate about this particular topic. I want to share my passion with the world. And Instagram or YouTube or TikTok allows me to do that. But what we've realized like, is that there, there's just so much opportunity, so many things you can build around it. But a lot of creators don't want to do that. They want to focus on what they enjoy, which is the creative aspect. So totally. it's like, how do you build businesses? And how do you enable these creators without focusing their attention away from what the core of what they like to do is? How do you allow them to monetize through other streams? Totally. And I think the other thing that I didn't mention is, I would actually argue Money with Katie is, is um, an outlier in the sense that she has the ability to be very versatile across content forms. So she has a newsletter while writing a blog, while having an Instagram account and being really good on camera. Like I would actually argue that's very rare. I would say most creators are really good at one format, but when you move them into another format, so say you have a creator who has become big on TikTok and they're great at short form vertical video, but maybe they don't have as much writing experience, but say they've built a multi-million person TikTok following and there's an opportunity for them to have a newsletter audience, but 
that is not a muscle that they necessarily trained or they wouldn't necessarily even enjoy it because it's a totally different skill set. To me, there's an opportunity for media companies to partner to expand basically the product suite for a creator who has one product and they don't necessarily know how to or wouldn't enjoy going into the suite of other products. Yeah. So are you doing this all under Morning Brew still or is there a part of this that's going to be separate Alex Lieberman? This is all under Morning Brew. And basically the, the thesis at Morning Brew is we don't want to build the world's largest audience. We want to build super passionate, high-quality niche audiences. So we did that with B2B, like I mentioned. We think that same opportunity exists in B2C. And so what we basically have said is like there are five or six categories that we want Morning Brew to own and have personalities who are the faces of franchises in these different categories. We call them interest areas. So investing. And within investing, there are many types of investing. There's retail investing, so like equity investing. There's real estate investing. There's crypto investing. And we think there are maybe two or three shows under each of those. There's personal finance. And we think Money with Katie doesn't have to be the only creator within personal finance. There's entrepreneurship, people who want to build businesses or have built businesses. Productivity. You want to just be a more effective professional. We think there's a lot to do in productivity. And so our view is we're focusing on these four or five deep interest areas where we know there will be a very passionate audience. And our goal is how do we help some of the best creators on the internet, who I would consider to be inning three creators, and I can define what that is in a second. How do we bring them to Morning Brew and we amplify the great work that they're already doing? So all of our creators, we give them a piece of the action. So they're given a percentage of every dollar around their franchise that's monetized. So just use the example of Money with Katie. Uh, all advertising dollars, all commerce dollars, so merchandise sold uh, around Katie, course or education dollars, she's seeing a percentage of all of that, right? So her incentive is not just to grow the Money with Katie universe. It's by growing the Money with Katie universe, we will be able to monetize you better. And by monetizing you better, you're seeing a percentage of all of that. So that's the first piece. Uh, the second piece is I view it as every additional offering you have for creators, it makes it that much harder for creators to leave. Meaning if you help creators with distribution, with growing, to me, that's like, okay, one check of value you bring as a business. You add, you add distribution through your owned audience that you can plug the creator in whenever. Let's say you also add monetization. So you have a sales org. Uh, that adds more value to the creator. So uh, now it makes it a little bit harder for them to leave uh, Rather, like versus if they weren't getting any sales help, they were just getting growth help. And on top of that, infrastructure help. So when they want to launch a new product or whether they want to get a podcast set up, uh, you add that, it makes it a little bit harder. Now, as Morning Bridge got into educational courses, say we help some of our creators create very successful cohort-based courses and all the infrastructure that goes into community managing those courses, creating the curriculum, makes it even harder. It's funny because most people, when they encounter a life-changing amount of money like you did when you sold the majority stake, they would kind of lose motivation. But I don't sense that at all with you. What is it that's still motivating you after that? Yeah. Well, I'll be totally honest. I have lost some semblance of motivation. Like I was, you know, 27 to 2019, 10, 11 out of 10 on the motivation scale. Today, I'm probably a six. The reason I think as we talk, I sound motivated is I am still motivated about the things that interest me. And I've just cut 
basically all the other things in my life that didn't interest me because it became harder and harder to fake it. So like, I am still very excited about creating content myself. I'm still very excited about talking to creators and thinking about not just where the creator economy is going, but where media is going broadly and where creator economy fits within that. I'm still very excited about where Morning Brew is going and being able to help shepherd that. Um, so yeah, I, I would be lying if I said I was uber motivated. Like I, uh, I spend less hours on Morning Brew today than I did when I was the CEO of the business. Say as CEO of the business, I spent 60 hours to 70 hours a week on the business minimum. Now I probably spend 35 hours a week on the business. But for a period of time, I created a ton of pressure for myself to say, okay, outside of those 35 hours, the rest of the hours of the week, I need to find either the next business to build or the next skill to accumulate or the next thing to do. And at some point I took that pressure off of myself because I realized like, I'm not someone who can force myself to go build something. I have to really get excited about it. And so Kim Lee, I've been playing a lot of golf. Like <laughs> I freaking love golf. It's a really great sport. It's also allows me to study like a niche passion audience. Like that's the nerdy side of me because I think a go the golfing audience is a super valuable audience. But eight months to 12 months ago, I would have felt really guilty about that because I would have said that like, I'm not allowing myself to grow. I should go think about the next thing to build. But I've realized just like motivation really goes in waves um, over the course of your life. And I'm in a period right now where what I am doing within Morning Brew is enough and enjoying my time getting really good at a sport and enjoying the outdoors feels really good right now. Um, but I was super hard on myself about that for a very long period of time. But I'm sure that personality of being overly hard on yourself and critical is what led you to be such a successful founder. I think my kind of style is I get interested in a lot of things. I will spend time on a lot of things. I'll get to like level three in a lot of things and I'll realize, oh, that wasn't the thing for me. And so I realized kind of me in that journey, like I'm going to take a lot of like small swings and it's not going to amount to anything. And it may come off to people as like Alex is kind of being, um, you know, too spontaneous or I'm kind of being erratic. But that's like, I think in my process of narrowing. And I think ultimately when I end up becoming really obsessed with something and I get below level three on the rabbit hole, I, it's like there's no level five. It's like level three jumps to level 12. I've just always been like wildly curious. Like I'm always curious. And so I think that's what moving forward, even using what we were talking about before is like, as money becomes less of a motivator, what is going to drive me? I think it is going to have to be some combination of my always on intrinsic curiosity and a long-term goal that makes me feel full or makes me feel like I'm being helpful to someone. I want to close this out with a little tradition we do. This okay. is called the Erica Taught Me Podcast, but truthfully, today is about the Alex Taught Me. So what is it that you want people to walk away from this podcast being able to say, Alex taught me this? Alex taught me that, one, it's okay to not be an entrepreneur. Entrepreneurship is sexy right now for some reason, but if it is not what intrinsically motivates you, that is okay. And by the way, you're not going to be a great entrepreneur if you're just doing it because that is the sexy thing to do. Second, if you choose the path of entrepreneurship, it is okay to not love every part of the journey. Not every entrepreneur is like Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos who run a business for 20-something years through every stage of business. That is actually the minority of people. It is okay to love a business and then realize it is okay to pass the baton over. 
Thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. If you enjoyed today's episode, you can follow Alex on Twitter to see everything he's up to. I'll put the link in the show notes. And I have a huge favor to ask. It would mean a lot if you could take a moment to leave a review for the podcast. Even just one sentence is perfect, and it really helps support the work that we're doing. Thank you for choosing to spend your time with me today, and I'll talk to you next Tuesday on a brand new episode of Erica Taught Me.